This morning, if you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to open it. If not, you'll see some of these verses up on the wall. There's also Bibles under the chairs, if you look in front of you. We're going to walk through a psalm this morning. Last week, we we started with Psalm 1. And uh, this morning, we are going to go to Psalm 2. I think they're connected. Psalm 1, as we saw last week, was how do you experience as an individual the blessing of God? And there was a a great summary of of what it means to, to do that. I'll sum it up by saying, if you want to be blessed, then you need to delight in the reign and the rule of God in your life, over your life, through your life. Psalm 2 is, is very similar because it, 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 it talks about nations rather than individuals. And so I, I want you to, uh, you know, Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man who does this. I want you to listen for that in this psalm because it uses the same announcement of how to be blessed in your life. Begin with verse 1, chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Well, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. And you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And kiss the Son, lest to be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This morning we read a psalm that brings up a topic that we're going to, if you read through the psalms, in fact, if you read through the Bible, you're going to come across this topic time and time again. It's a topic that in, I think, the last 50 years, there's been, it's been a topic that is heard about less and less and less. And I think it's unfortunate. The topic is this thing called the wrath of God. By the way, this is one of the reasons why people don't show up in churches is because they don't want to walk in and hear about a God of wrath. And so I want to challenge you to listen this morning very carefully as we walk through this. <clears throat> uh, next week, I'm going to continue to develop this because I think it's such an important thing to understand. I think people have a hard time with this. They, they say, you know, I see God as a God of love. Not a God of wrath. I, I, I just can't make sense of the God of the Old Testament. I mean, I like Jesus. 
That's what I think God might be like, but this God of the Old Testament, that doesn't just seem to fit. Or, I want to do nothing. I, want, I, I don't want to have anything to do with a God of wrath. A God who would send people to hell. And so this morning, I, I want us to begin to think and, and talk about that and begin to look at this through, through this psalm. So this is called an ascension psalm. It means it would be a psalm that would be read when a king was crowned and anointed and the day he was put on the throne, this psalm would be read. And so there's a very original meaning to this psalm. It was very important in the day. In the, book, in the New Testament, this psalm is quoted and it's attributed to David. So this had meaning for David and for the nations around them. And basically, the message of this psalm is this. You know, God has set up his anointed king. There are nations that are raging against this king that God has set up, who would have been David in that time. And there's a warning about taking on God's anointed. We see David was very, very aware of this when he had a chance to kill Saul, who was trying to take his life, but he said, I... I can't touch Saul because he is God's anointed king. So we have that meaning in the day. But this psalm spills way over its banks. It, it is much more than just about this day uh, back in Israel. It is definitely what we call a messianic psalm. It is a lot, there's a lot of references here to a, a much greater king. And we're going to talk about that king this morning a king that, by the way, is, is alive and reigning in our day. Whether you're aware of that or not, he is here today and very much a part of this world. So Spurgeon, the old uh, preacher, divided this into four acts like a play. And I think it's helpful this morning as we walk through this. Four acts. Number one, the kings of the earth. So the first people on the stage are the kings of the earth. And there's a description of them. Verses 1 to 3. Then 4 through 6, we see that God enters the stage and he responds to these, these kings. The third act, verses 7 through 9, is God's anointed king takes a role on the stage. And then lastly, we see that David here speaks to the kings uh, around him. So let's just walk through this. Act 1, the kings of the earth come. It says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointing, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So what are the people here, what are the rulers of the earth wanting to do? They do not want to live under the reign and rule of, the word here is the anointed, his anointed. The, the word there that we find is, is Mashiach, which means Messiah. So what do they want? Well, it says they want to burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Later this spring, there is a group that are going to the Philippines. Uh, this was taken from a late 
mid-July, the president of the Philippines, it says the president of Philippines, who recently sparked outrage for calling God stupid, has courted new controversy in his largely Roman Catholic country by saying, he will resign if anybody can prove that God exists. Where is the logic of God out there? He asked in a speech at the opening of a science and technology event in southern Davio City. The 73-year-old leader said, if there's one single witness who can prove, perhaps with a picture or a selfie, that a human was able to talk and see God, he said, I will immediately resign. And then he goes on to demonstrate certainly the epitome of raging against God. Who is this stupid God? This blankety-blank then is really stupid, he said last week. So the question the psalmist is, why do rulers rage against God? But that's a pretty extreme example, and I, I, I want us to understand what it really means here to rage against God. It's basically to say, I want to be free of this God. I want, to be my, I want to live my own life. I want to be free to do my own thing. I want to be free to be me. Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me there's absolute truth. Don't tell me I'm wrong. I mean, who are you to tell me I'm wrong? Are you my judge or something? I mean, who judges me? There is no judge. They are their own judge. And so, we don't need religion. We don't need God. We're capable of managing things here ourselves. Thank you anyway. God is repressive. God is archaic. God's out of step with the times. God's ways are bigoted. God's ways are discriminatory. Even unloving, unkind, and uncompassionate. The nations rage against the king. It's not that we don't believe in God. 75% of Americans, close to 80, 75 to 80% of Americans say they believe in God. I mean, we believe perhaps the king exists, that that king actually exists. But the nations are not raging against the existence of a God. The nations are raging against the rule and reign of God in their lives. It's kind of like, you know what? God can exist out there. That's okay. God can exist. But don't ask me to obey this God, to submit to this God, to give my full allegiance to this God, to serve and honor and worship this God with all of my being. That's what it means to rage against the king. It's interesting in the book of Acts that the, uh, Peter and John went into the temple and they healed this guy. He'd been lame for like 40 years. And the religious, it, stir, it made quite a stir, obviously, and, and the religious leaders were upset about it, so they dragged Peter and John in and they kind of reamed them out and they said, you guys, you can't, you can't keep preaching this, this Jesus stuff. And they said, well, we don't have any choice. We're going to keep doing it. So they warned them again and, and sent them out. And when they arrived back with the, with the other Christians, where they were, they, they prayed. And in Acts 4, we see that prayer. I want to read just, <clears throat> just a, little, a little bit of that section. It's, they said, Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them, 
Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the nations rage, the Gentiles rage, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and rulers are gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So, in the book of Acts, they take Psalm 2, and they bring it into their own contemporary situation, say, you know, part of how nations rage against God is is that they dismiss, in fact, they, they, they are belligerent against the gospel and the preaching of the gospel and the sharing of the gospel. But it's not just them, it's us here this morning. And if you were to read through the New Testament, you would find just a number of indicting statements about you and I, about who we are in our natural state, in and of ourselves, without the Lord. Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins and when she once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, who, by the way, is the God of this age, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind, listen to this, we were by nature children of wrath. We were by nature children of wrath. And we react against that. We say, well, I, I, I'm not, I wasn't by nature a child of wrath. What's that saying is, is that our minds and our thinking were contrary to the reign and rule of God in our lives. And so we, we find this description in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. We find <clears throat> these words, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So at one point, it says we were alienated and hostile in our minds towards God. It means that we're kind of going, you know what, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live out my life by what I think. I'm not going to live my life about, by what, what you think. I'm going to be my own God to myself. I'm not going to live my life. And so this is called the hostile mind. It's opposed to God's reign and rule in our lives. The book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 6 through 8, it says, to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, and it does not submit to God's laws. So what does that mean? It means that we're in rebellion against God and his word and his reign and his rule in our lives. That's what it means to rage here against God's. And one of the ways that people avoid the reign of God is by being religious, believe it or not. In fact, look at the Pharisees. They were the most religious people on the planet, and they hated God. They hated him so bad, they crucified him on a cross. And so religion can be a, a, a way in which we actually, interestingly enough, actually rebel against God by setting a certain things we do and things we don't do and, and this and that and say, now God, you know, 
now I can do my own thing because I'm, I'm doing these religious things for you. Rather than a surrender of our lives fully to the reign of God. So what is God's response? This is the second act. Go back to the psalm again. Verse 3 or 4. It says, He who sits in heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So God's response is that he laughs. Now this isn't like God thinks it's funny. But this is a sad laughter. I, I was reading a little article about this, this little boy. Was, he was out washing the car for the first time. And he had the hose with the nozzle on it. And you know, when you pull the thing, you get this powerful spray of, of water coming out. And so he was just amazed at the power of this water. And his father was watching in the window. And at, at, at one point, he, uh, he turned like He looked around. He, he turned like this and he pointed it at the sun. And just held it there. His, and his dad asked him later what he was doing. He said, I wanted to see if I could put out the sun. You know, it's kind of the picture I get here of these nations thinking they can, they can rage and, and win against the God, the creator of the universe. And God just shakes his head as they rage against him. God is not worried. God is not threatened. He's not in fear of nations like other nations would be. He's not concerned about the reign of the king, this anointed one, this Messiah, He's not worried that his reign is going to be thwarted any more than he worries about a six-year-old child putting out the sun with a garden hose. And so, God's response is his wrath and his fury against those who stand in stark rebellion against him. The wrath of God is his response now, let me be very clear. God is not wrath. There's nowhere in the Bible that says God is wrath. You know what God is? God is love. God's character is not wrath. God's character is love. But the wrath is a response of God to certain behavior, and it is the response of those who stand in rebellion against him. You know, in this country, and it still is, treason is what we call that. Treason is, treason is seeking to overthrow someone to whom you owe allegiance. And so here we are, those whom God has created upon the earth. He, we owe him our utter allegiance because everything we have, everything we are, our next breath is from him. And to try and overthrow that authority is treason. Even in our country, treason is still punishable with, with death. So we see in Jesus' day, we see Pontius Pilate. And Jesus is accused of insurrection. He's, a, he's accused of treason. And so what Pilate does is he says, okay... Let's, let's just, I'm going to throw Barabbas out there because everybody knows that Barabbas is guilty of insurrection, 
trying to overthrow the Roman government. And in an incredibly bizarre change of events, we have the world of that day guilty before God of insurrection, of standing against God's anointed one, accusing God of being the one guilty of insurrection. And so ends Act 2 and and God's response to those who rage against him. Act 3 is the Messiah's response. And it's interesting here, he reiterates this truth. The Lord said to me, you are my son, I've begotten you. Ask of me, I will make the nations your heritage. So what what does Jesus get out of all this? Coming, dying on that cross. What is his inheritance? You know what it is? It's something incredibly important to him. It's you. That's his inheritance. It's all of those who have ceased and repented of their raging against the king, of wanting to be there, they're under their own rule and their own reign. And all of those who have submitted their lives to the reign of God, all of those who are followers of Christ, who is the king, I mean, can't you see why there's only one way to God? Because there's only one king. If you've not submitted to Christ as a king, then you're not submitted to the king. And, and so we, we see here that the Lord's inheritance are people from Great Britain and Nepal and Ethiopia and Africa and New Zealand, and Australia, and people all across the face of the earth who have submitted their lives to his kingship, who have come under his reign. And the Lord's inheritance is that the day is coming when he will reign upon the earth with all people who want to know him as king. And you know what? If you don't want him as your king, he won't be your king. And you won't reign with him. And, and you will be on your own. And there's a lot the Bible has to say about what happens when you disconnect yourself from the sustainer and the source of life in the universe. Messiah's response. Notice it at the end. The day is coming when in his justice and in his love he will reign And you know what? This mess of a world. Everybody in this room has experienced the brokenness of this world in in so many ways. And there's a king who's going to come and that's all going to be made right. And he's offering that to all who want to come under his kingship. All who want to cease their rebellion and, and submit their lives to him. And so in the end, how will that happen? It says in verse 9, You shall break them with a rod of of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And so we talk about Jesus as the Prince of Peace. But if you flesh that out, go read about the Prince of Peace in the book of Revelation, in the end of time. The Prince of Peace comes riding in on a white horse and a sword. And his wrath will come and all who stand in rebellion against him will be destroyed. The wrath of God will be poured out on all those who stand against him. 
And so we, we, we see this, this, amazing, this amazing truth of how the king will bring all things under his reign and under his rule. In Acts, or the, in Act 4, we see finally the, the response, the, the reply. David's giving a warning to kings. And this would be a warning to kings in his day. It would be a warning to kings in our day. It's a warning to anyone who wants to stand against the king. It's, it's for those who want to be their own king. He says, don't try and go against God's anointed. Instead, serve the king with fear. Rejoice in the king coming to reign over your life. Kiss the son. And then he says, take refuge in him. And you know what? The blessed people, the blessed people upon the earth will be those who've taken refuge in him. There is no refuge from him. There is only refuge in him. There is no refuge from him. There is only refuge in him. And thus the psalm ends with that promise. It's interesting in in Revelation 6, when we look at the end of time, we see that... There is a response to this lamb. Chapter 6, Revelation, verse 15. It says, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? And the rhetorical answer is, no one will stand. No one will stand. All those who have been opposed to the king, all those who have rejected the king, will come under the wrath of God. Well, the amazing thing this morning about the cross of Jesus Christ. The amazing thing that we're going to celebrate around this table is that for those who have come to the king that we no longer live under the wrath or the fear of God. The amazing thing about this table is that Jesus Christ took the wrath for sin upon himself And he is now that refuge that we can run to. He's that that one that we can hide to. And for all who are willing to acknowledge the king and submit their lives to his kingship, the wrath and the punishment and the guilt of our sin was poured out upon, you know, God had this predicament because God just hates everything that is not good. You know what? God hates everything. Everything that is evil that has happened in your life, more than you hate it. That's what God's wrath is about. 
We see things that happen to people. We, we see things that are unjust and we hate it. And we call for justice. But let's not take that prerogative away from God. Let's, let's not fail to understand that God feels even more that way than we do. And so all of that, all of that sin and all of that brokenness, because God in his very essence is love, and yet, because of that love, he also has a wrath against sin and evil and all that which harms. And, and in the cross, what happened, we see this amazing demonstration of God's love and that God takes the wrath for our sin upon himself. That's what's so astounding. That's what's so unique about the Christian faith is that this is about God taking all the wrath for your sin and mine and all of our rebellion, it's taking it upon himself and being willing before God, if we're willing to receive that, to say, this is now, this is now satisfied. All of my wrath has been poured out on Jesus Christ. And we are free to live without fear of wrath. God will discipline us because he loves us. There will be consequences when we sin and live contrary to his will, but we are no longer through Christ. Hear me very clear. We are no longer under the wrath or fury of God. The wrath and the fury of God are for those who reject his kingship, who rebel against the king, who, who are in, in guilty of treason against the God of this universe. This morning, we're going to, in just a moment, celebrate uh, the amazing gift of the cross to us today. Father, I, uh, I thank you for this psalm. In some ways, it's a hard psalm because it, we, we, we come away from it understanding that the day's coming when you will not tolerate those who have rejected you and, and rebelled against the king. And that will be a terrible day for those who reject your kingship. And yet we also see that you have set up a king and that there is hope in this world and that through the cross, through the amazing work of the cross, that though we were by nature children of wrath, now we are children of God. And we are no longer under condemnation. We are no longer under your wrath because we have received the work of Christ on our behalf the day when, when he took that wrath upon himself. And so we can live in freedom. We can live free of, of fear of the wrath of God. We can live in, in forgiveness. And just what an amazing love that is. What an amazing grace that you would die and, and you would take our place so as we end this service this morning, we, we want to celebrate that great truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.